0: Our Old Testament reading this week comes from Daniel, chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all, other, all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, Because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Thank you, Herman. Well, good good morning. The passage that Herman read is from the book of Daniel and. Some of you may know that Daniel was written at a time when God's people were exiles and captives in Babylon. And the way the people of God learned to behave and learned to interact with a largely hostile pagan culture is sort of the backdrop for the book of Peter. This morning, we're continuing our series in 1 Peter, our series that we've titled Resident Aliens, The Church in Exile. And for those of you who have, haven't been with us as we've been going through this series, we've talked about how um, that the land we've, most of us have grown up in here in the United States feels pretty weird. We feel often like strangers in a strange land because the gospel does alienate us in some ways from the culture, doesn't it? Our faith and our allegiance to Jesus make us strangers in a strange land. And so the idea or the motif of exile was a powerful symbol for the early Christians, scattered as they were throughout the Roman Empire. And as we read through our passage this morning, in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17, I want you to be on the lookout for two things, two main things that, that Peter wants the Christian exiles to grab a hold of as they learn what it means to be faithful. And number one, it's fighting the flesh and yielding to human institutions or yielding to others. Fighting the flesh and yielding to human institutions the best that they can. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. This is the word of God. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, or pilgrims, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake. To every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, For this is the will of God. And then by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live then as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. ...but living as the servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Father, now we pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit... ...to guide us through this passage and set our hearts ablaze with the truth. Convict us and convince us of your word, its power and meaning in our lives... ...that we might leave this place differently... And the way we came in, in the name of your son, we pray, amen. Well, I've talked in the past about my love for backpacking. And I'm from California and moved here a while ago, and I have to admit the backpacking here is, it's not as good as it was in California, but there's some good backpacking here in Missouri. In California, the mountains are huge, and some of those backpacking trails, I mean, I like to hike into the woods, into a remote area of the mountains or the wilderness and set up camp. That's what I love. That is the reset button for me. There's no text messages on the trail. There's no emails to answer. There's no budgetary considerations to look at. It's just huffing and puffing on the trail, trying to put one boot in front of the other with a pack on my back and maybe a couple friends. And I love that, but it can be dangerous. And in California, some of the mountains are thousands of feet high, and some of the trails are on the sides of these mountains. And so there are parts of the trail where if you slipped or sprained an ankle, you could go tumbling off the trail thousands of feet to your death. And every year, some people do. And so, there is this duality, this sort of reality of nature, that there is both beauty in nature and there's danger. There's beauty and there's danger. In fact, the appeal for me is that there's both. If it wasn't kind of dangerous, I don't know that I would enjoy it as much. But that is a duality or a dual reality that we accept about nature the wilderness and nature both are true at the same time and life is that way life is filled with dual realities and every single day we traverse these dual realities as sort of the cost of living right and we make peace with these dual realities relationships are another perfect example They fill us with joy and meaning. We cherish the people that we know and we love and the friendships we have. And at the same time, people can hurt you. And they do hurt you. And sometimes relationships fall apart. And the only alternative is to sort of lock yourself away in a cave and live a lonely and miserable existence. And so we recognize that relationships are beautiful and joyful. They give our lives meaning. And at the same time, they can be painful. I've noticed that as people get older, they seem to be less willing to make new relationships because they've been burned. That happens, doesn't it? The Bible is also filled with dual realities. Not contradictions, but dual realities. Things that are simultaneously true, but sort of opposite at the same time. Some might call it a tension or a tautology, right? Two things that seem different but are both true and exist together side by side. One example is we say that God is imminent and transcendent. He's sort of beyond us, and at the same time is close to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God is beyond us. In some ways, he's incomprehensible. And at the same time, he's close to us. Another one is that God's good world, God's creation is good, and at the same time, fallen broken, isn't it? It can be beautiful, the world can be a beautiful place to live, and at the same time, it can be cold and indifferent the next minute. Again, these are not either or realities, but sort of both and. And there is also a dual reality, and this is the main point I want to make this morning, and this is the point that Peter is making, is that we, our place in the world as Christian exiles, is that of both pilgrims and citizens those things exist side by side for us in the world we are pilgrims just traveling through this world and at the same time we're citizens of this world and that means we have a duty don't we we have a duty to resist the wicked influences of our culture on us personally and at the same time we have a duty to our neighbors and communities to be well good neighbors and sometimes it can be hard sort of walking the tightrope between these two realities we are not to let the the culture transform us and grab a hold of us and suck us into its sort of wicked ideas and at the same time like we're not enemies of the culture we're not trying to be we're trying to be good neighbors and it can be confusing at times and people including Christians often get confused And Peter here in this text sort of lays out two really basic ideas about what it means to live in this tension of these dual realities as pilgrims and citizens. And the first thing he tells Christian exiles is to fight the flesh's passions, 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as pilgrims and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now this pits or puts the, the culture wars in perspective, doesn't it? Right? Uh, depending how old you are, you sort of remember the Christian culture wars that have taken place over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, sort of moral majority and... You know, Christians got involved in politics and still are to some degree and this longing to sort of use the, the power we had maybe you'd call it a voting block whatever you may call it to sort of change the culture and Peter here is essentially saying that if you want to change the culture the primary thing you ought to be mindful of is pursuing personal holiness. James Packer so much of his ministry and writings, if you haven't read J.I. Packer, is about the pursuit of holiness and the need that the world has for your holiness. Your neighbor probably needs more than anything else your personal holiness. We often don't think that way when we think about changing the culture, right? We think about structures and things like that and institutions, and that's not totally wrong, but primarily... Peter is concerned that Christian exiles abstain and resist the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. There's a little word play I did a minute ago, right? The culture wars. How do we wage war against the culture? Maybe we shouldn't. We should be waging war against the passions and temptations of the flesh. And this is fitting with pretty much everything else in scripture in the new testament isn't it it helps us to recognize that we should probably hate our own sins more than we hate the sins of others but that doesn't happen does it we often find ourselves caught up and wrapped up in pointing out the sins of other people now don't get me wrong there are some things happening in our world right now and in our nation that are abhorrent right Deeply troubling. And you can't help but to name evil, right? To name things that are evil. Well, you're saying we we shouldn't name that which is evil in our culture? No, we should. We should talk about it, identify it, teach our kids about the things that go, go against the very heart of God. But we ought to be more concerned with fighting the sin in our own heart. This is what Peter, I think, is getting at. Paul in Romans 13, 14 says the very same thing, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And again, Paul says in Romans, and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions. I'm probably starting to sound like a broken record by now, especially if you were here for our series earlier in the year on holiness. We did a whole series on holiness. But a profession of faith in a holy God that isn't backed up by holy living stinks in the nostrils of our neighbors. And they may not have the discernment of the Holy Spirit, but even they have enough discernment to say, this doesn't pass the smell test, right? Your unholy living, I'm not talking about perfection, perfection, Talking about some semblance of reflecting, though, the faith you say you have. The faith we say we have. And this also puts our judgment of what's happening in the culture in the right perspective. Because our most piercing judgment against sin should really be ourselves, on ourselves. Look at what Paul tells the Corinthians. Some of you maybe have never read this passage before. What business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God has given us discernment. He's given us wisdom. He's given us the freedom and ability to say, that's not right. That's an abomination. That's wicked. But primarily, what Paul was concerned with was that the church itself was modeling the very thing it was proclaiming, which was faithful allegiance and loyalty to a God who had justified his people. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus himself had almost nothing to say to the pagan Romans and Greeks. Who were his harshest words reserved for? the scribes and the Pharisees, who were part of the covenant community, what maybe we today would call the church. Jesus' harshest words of judgment were not for the pagans, but for people who were inside the covenant community. He said, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He was deeply grieved that the people that were supposed to be representing God were themselves a stumbling block to unbelievers. What did the Romans and the Greeks know about God's covenant? Nothing. But those who knew the covenant, those who belonged to the covenant, well, they had a higher accountability before God, and that's who Jesus was concerned with correcting the most. Their corruption was a stumbling block to would-be converts. And if you think about your own life and the mission that God has given you as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not hard to recognize that there is some responsibility that we have, isn't there? Not saying we should stand by idly at what's happening in the culture around us and be silent. We should name the evils in our society and be wary of that evil, and be on guard against that evil, and teach and talk to our children about it. But judgment begins at the house of God, and this is actually a theme in Peter. You've heard it before, probably, but it comes from right here in Peter. We're jumping ahead. We'll get to it in a couple chapters, but look at what Peter says. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's own household. That's sobering, isn't it? It's sobering. And here's the point. What pagans need to see is not how much we hate them for their wickedness, but how compelling a transformed life is. And this is what Peter is trying to get at. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's another translation of the same verse. I like this one kind of, I like this one better. Live such good lives among the pagans and surrounding peoples in your community that though they slander you as evildoers, when disasters come, they may glorify God when they see how well you conduct yourselves. Live good lives in front of the people who hate you. So that they have no reason to accuse you they'll accuse you anyway because you follow Christ but make it so that they really don't have a cause and we know that this strategy won't win everyone over cultural relevance is a cruel mistress we know that some people will make fun of us for our clean and godly living I think of something that happened a few years ago, right before the Me Too movement. Uh, Regardless of where where you stand on Mike Pence's politics, there was a, a, a situation where Mike Pence was ridiculed and berated by the mainstream media for essentially creating boundaries so he could stay faithful to his wife. He did not allow himself to be alone with another woman. Seemed like a pretty good practice, right? He loved his wife professing Christian again I don't know his heart don't know if he's truly a Christian you know whether regardless of whether you stand on his politics but I was sort of befuddled at why he was being attacked and he was he was berated as a sexual prude or a closet homosexual or something like that and when the Me Too movement happened a few months later and everybody was implicated well guess who wasn't Mike Pence (laughs) I mean And and no one came out and said, we're sorry. We're sorry for making fun of you, Mike Pence, right? Like, I mean, it was just, but that's what the world does, right? They'll slander you, they'll lie against you, they'll speak evil and wicked against you, but don't give them any reason to. Live in such a way that even when they do, they'll be embarrassed they did. You may not be initially or immediately vindicated, but God will vindicate you over time. We find ourselves hated on account of Christ. We know that. And Jesus said, the servant's not greater than his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you also. We know that. But there are people in the world who right now hate you, who God has chosen and called before the foundation of the world, who one day he'll save. Who your good living, your godly living, the Spirit is using to draw them. Maybe right now they slander you. They speak evil and wicked against you, but God is using your life one day to convict and to draw them to himself. And some were such of you, right? Some of you were that way as well. You were someone maybe who made fun of Christians or... And God drew you close. I can think of people right now in my life who who I know that I, I am, I've been helped and blessed and transformed because someone was praying for me. I didn't know it at the time, but like in the spirit, I know, I know that person had to, be, had to be praying for me. Or someone's life modeled such a behavior that it had such a deep impact on me that transformed me down the road. Here's the main point, okay? It's up on our screen. The Christian calling isn't an all out war against the culture. It's subversion of the culture by warring against the flesh. That's not the only way we subvert the culture, but it's one main way. The Christian calling is not an all out war against the culture. It's subversion of the culture by warring against the flesh. That's what we are as Christian exiles. We're subversives, we're not revolutionaries. We're subversives. We are living our lives alongside of our neighbors and coworkers and classmates, but we're subversive. We are demonstrating a beautiful life, a life that is attractive and beautiful. And what does it mean to live good and beautiful and attractive lives? Well, according to Peter, it appears that Living a beautiful life means treating people with dignity and honor and respect. Honor and respect even the people we disagree with fiercely. And in our divisive polarized culture, I think Christians ought to be the ones modeling this the best. We can have a principled disagreement with someone and yet not necessarily divide with them. Or become, you know, mortal enemies with them. Now, I get it. Sometimes nothing you can do can keep someone from hating you or wanting to divide. But living a beautiful and attractive life means honor and respecting others even when they don't deserve it. Love your enemies. Do good to those that despitefully use and persecute you. We live lives of integrity and faithfulness and we do the right thing even when no one is looking. That may seem like, you know, just like basic 101 godly living but it bears repeating for us and we don't do any of these things to earn god's favor again we're not trying to work harder so that god will love and accept us we're doing these things because we are beloved of the father we're loved by god we're blessed by god and we want to radiate outward the grace love and favor that god has already given us and so our lives are a proclamation Yes, we preach the gospel with words. But our lives preach. Our lives are a proclamation of the grace and love of God. So as pilgrims, we resist the wicked influence of the culture by abstaining from the passions of the flesh. But as citizens, we submit to authority as much as we can for God's sake. Look at the next passage. 2 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Some of you are already, the wheels are turning. Jordan, we need to talk. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to those who praise and praise those who do good. What's instructive for us is that Peter wrote this when Nero was emperor. Peter wrote this when Nero was in control. This is the guy remember who fiddled while Rome burned and blamed the Christians. And Peter is saying, you know, be subject for the lord's sake whether it be to the emperor even as supreme we submit to those in authority in the halls of national and local government because well i think peter is trying to help early christians identify what kind of people they should be and he's essentially saying and this may sound elementary everyone but like he's like essentially saying we're not troublemakers that's not who christians are supposed to be You know, we don't want to like light the world on fire and make everyone hate us. They already are going to hate us for our proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's sort of like minimize, you know, these other areas of life and balance it out because the message of the gospel is already hard. The message that you're a sinner and need forgiveness and that forgiveness is only found in the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus itself is offensive. And it's also evangelistic. Peter's words here, he has in mind sort of the winsomeness of the church. And, you know, we recognize that God establishes authority and rule and power. We recognize that. Or else the world would descend into chaos, wouldn't it? Of course, the problem is not everyone in power is good and righteous and loves God, right? Throughout history, and even right now in the world, there are wicked people who are in power. But kings and governors and prime ministers serve at God's pleasure, and it's not always the person, but it's the office that we ought to respect and submit to. Societies that don't have these structures descend into chaos. We know that. Now, here's the flip side. Submission to human authorities is always partial and proximate. And blind obedience in Scripture is never required. Uh, Last year we went through the book of Romans. And for those of you who are familiar, Romans 13 is that famous passage about be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority that exists except from God. How many of you have heard that passage before? Yeah. And that, that verse gets sort of abused a lot. And I would imagine that what Peter is saying here also can easily be abused. And one of the things we talked about is that government power is, or the, the command to yield and to submit, is not absolute. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that from Scripture. And one thing that most reputable scholars say when, you, when you're reading Romans 13 is they say Romans 13 has to be compared to Revelation 13. Revelation 13 about resist the beast the beast was a euphemism at the time for the Roman Empire and there were good things the Roman Empire did like pave roads and brought structure and and infrastructure and authority and and all these different things and at the same time they were incredibly corrupt and idolatrous and one of the things the Roman Empire tried to do is try, try to force Christians to worship the Emperor and the Roman and Greek gods And John says in Revelation 13, do not do it. Resist. So we have to take Peter's words with a discerning heart and understanding that Peter's motivation for writing this is he wants Christians as pilgrims and citizens to understand the balance of life in a fallen and broken world. Does that make sense that's what he wants us to grab a hold of generally speaking we are law-abiding people we are peaceful people we are friendly neighbors and we are trying to seek the good of our community in every possible way we can and then there are times where we must obey God rather than men Acts 5 29 right there are times when we have to obey God. And whenever consequences come, right, let them come. In America, we, we have not experienced this acutely, but it feels like we're getting close to it. We're getting closer to that. As our culture moves farther and farther away from God and people in power are farther and farther away from God, I was recently watching an interview with a Washington, D.C. journalist. I don't know who she wrote for. She had a conversion story. She was talking about coming to Christ, and she said for the first 20 years of her career in Washington, D.C., and I'm talking about like a, you know, a journalist who's, you know, the papers and the media outlets. She said in 20 years of covering politics in D.C., she had not met a single Christian, she, or she didn't know, a, she didn't have a single friend who was a Christian doesn't mean there weren't Christians in D.C., but her point was, and it was chilling when I heard it, that the, the vast majority of the people who run America are godless, or a lot of them were, from her experience. Now, I know there are Christians in politics. There are faithful Christians in government but our culture seems to be moving further and further away from any overt, professed Christian identity. And we have to keep these things in tension, don't we? We submit to authority as much as we can, but there are some times you just can't. When they try to force you to commit idolatry, we resist the beast, we don't take his mark. And I can imagine that the early Christians that Peter was writing to were largely compliant on most laws and edicts, but there were some things that they could not abide by. And these things inflamed the emperor at times. And there are some things today we as Christians cannot abide by. Now, does Peter give us a list? He does not. And I'm glad he doesn't, and I'll tell you why. Because every single age of Christians, every single period of history, the church experiences its own unique challenges. Imagine if Peter said, resist these three things. That wouldn't be good. Because if those three things were not a present challenge to you, you'd say, oh, I'm in the clear. What Peter and the New Testament writers are more concerned with is getting us as Christians to think, Here it is, Christianly. There are bare commands in Scripture, but sometimes it's more helpful not to delineate a list of things. Now, you can think about a list of things right now that are pressing in on you, that you feel an acute tension right now to resist or to go along with. And here's the shocker. uh, The person on the other side of the aisle in this in this uh, room here may disagree with you on some of these issues. You may say, this is something that we ought to absolutely resist. And someone else may say, no, are you nuts? Like, this is, some, this is not a hill to die on, and vice versa. Someone may say, this absolutely is a hill to die on. The motivation, of course, is that it, in, all of your, in all of the stewardship of your freedoms that you love one another, you love your neighbor. I thought about, you know, here's a bullet-pointed list of things I should put up on the screen. I resisted that. (laughs) I don't want to already inflame the things that are there, right? I'm talking about things that are not clearly outlined in Scripture. Those things you have to resist when the culture presses in. We're not talking about those things. I'm talking about the things that are more ambiguous, where Scripture doesn't speak as clearly, right? Peter doesn't give us a list, but he says this, though, in verse 15 For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, live as people who are free. But not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as the servants of God. So how do we know if we're using our freedoms, this is the land of the free, the home of the brave, how do we know if we're using our freedoms as a cover-up for evil? You ever thought about that? Am I using my freedoms as a cover-up for evil? The King James calls it a cloak of maliciousness, for those of you who are raised on a KJV, you know. Use not thy freedom for a cloak of maliciousness. I think of, you know. <laughs> Don't use it as a cover-up for evil. Well, here's a, couple, here's a couple thoughts, okay? If you know whether you're using your freedoms as a cover-up for evil. Is it explicitly forbidden in Scripture? It may be legal. You may be free to do it. A lot of things now have become legal, which means you're free to do it without, you know, the consequence of, Being arrested or legal action, that doesn't make it right, though. It may be sin. That's one way to know if you're using your freedom as a cover-up, right? Just because you're free to do it because it's legal doesn't mean you should if it's forbidden in Scripture. Secondly, is it self-indulgent? Am I doing something that gratifies my flesh but's a stumbling block to my neighbor? You can think of Romans 14 where Paul gets into the dietary food laws and restrictions between you know, sort of Jewish converts and Gentile converts. The Gentiles converts, they had no problem eating food that was offered to idols, but the Jewish Christians, you know, their conscience was horribly grieved by that. And Peter counsels love as the guiding principle to figure out what you should do in any given situation. Those are just a couple, I'm sure there's more, but those are just a couple ways to figure out whether you're using your freedoms as a cover up for evil. On the flip side, How do you know if you're stewarding your freedom faithfully? Well, here's a question to ask. Is it a matter of personal conscience that I've thought about deeply with love and consideration of others? And no one can tell you what the right or wrong answer about that is. Because we all have a conscience. And if it's not explicitly outlined in Scripture, you have to ask that Question, have I, am I engaging in this using my freedom after I have thought deep, deep, deeply and considerately about my neighbor? And if the answer is yes, and your conscience is not grieved, second question is Does the exercise of this freedom honor and glorify God? And for one person, the answer may, may be no, and the other person, the answer may be yes. My wife and I actually have that disagreement about some Christian freedoms. There, are, there is something that I do that I do to the glory of God, and, and I thank God for it every time I partake of it. And in her mind, she absolutely cannot see, she's tried to slice this loaf a thousand ways, she does not see how it glorifies God, and she's grieved by it. And and so even within our own household, there are certain freedoms that, that our consciences come down on different sides. Because the Bible's not totally clear about this particular issue. So if you've asked those questions, maybe I'm going too far to say you're in the clear, but you get the idea. Do some heart work, some soul searching. Consider your neighbor, and if you feel justified before God and something that scripture does not speak explicitly to, you've prayed about it, you've considered whether you're being loving, you're in the clear. And this is Peter's concern. This is how he closes, and this this is how I'm going to close. That whatever you do, however you fall down on these issues, whatever your position is, verse 17 he says, honor everyone, Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And that's that's the message this morning to you as, as a pilgrim and as a citizen. As someone who's traveling through this world, this world is not our home, and yet this world is our home for now. Until the Lord returns, until he ushers in a new heaven and a new earth, this world right now is the only home we have. And so we know that we are not of this world, but we're living in this world. And we have an obligation to steward our freedoms, steward our rights, and to steward love towards one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for the grace that you've communicated to us in your word and through your son Jesus who has saved us and delivered us from the consequences and penalties of our sins, a most certain and assured destruction, and given us life. And on account of Jesus, your son, you call us sons and daughters. You invite us into your family as your children. And you've given us a mandate in this world to honor you and also to be mindful of the culture around us by fighting its wicked influences and temptations and also trying to live at peace as much as we can with our surrounding society so father help us to navigate the challenge of this dual reality as pilgrims and citizens in christ's name we pray amen